So as we move on in our, in our series, we're, we're working through the book of First John together as a church. And I ran into an article uh, this week in Rolling Stone magazine about the, the artist Adele. She said this, I have the shakes. It's 7.30, and she's in the basement of a, of a dressing room uh, uh, underneath a 1,200-capacity uh, nightclub. And she says, I'm, I get really scared. I get really scared of performing. One show in Amsterdam, I was so nervous, I escaped out the fire exit. I've thrown up a couple times. One time in Brussels, I projectile vomited on someone. And I just have to bear it. I don't like touring. I get a lot of anxiety attacks. So for most people, though, uh, this uh, changes when she uh, goes, or it changes things when, when, when they go on stage. You know, once, once you get on stage, then the stage uh, anxiety tends to go away, but, but it doesn't for Adele. The only way that she can get through it is by, by thinking to herself that nothing has ever gone horrifically wrong before, so it must be okay. But then she says this. She says, I mean, the thought of someone spending $20 to come see me and saying, oh, I prefer the recorded album really upsets me. It's such a big deal that people come and give me their time. So from the outside, looking in at, uh, at, at what Adele is going through and the success that she's achieved, and, and we, by, all, um, by all worldly standards, we would say that Adele has reached it. She has reached the, 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 the pinnacle. She has multiple albums that are record award winning. She, she has released singles that are off the charts. She, she is someone who draws crowds to pack concert halls and, and is probably going to be, at the end of her career, known as one of the greatest female singers of all time. And so, so we look at her and we look at somebody who should be walking around with swagger and confidence. And yet, this is not the case. And we would have no clue by looking at her. If you, if you watch any videos of her, if you go to any show that she's performing, it looks like she is so put together. But she's not. She still struggles with things. Her greatest fear is that people will think that her recorded album is better than her live performance. And so sitting on this receiving end, this can give us a little bit of a disconnect or anxiety. You know, uh, we may think, well, if someone is successful and is put together as Adele is, is, is just as hopeless in this confidence area, then what is their hope for me? And then on the scene marches the author of First John, who says that there is available to us a confidence that is so strong that not only can we walk through any life circumstance or anything that comes at us from, from this world, but, but also we can stand at the second coming of Jesus Christ confident. Not backing down in shame, not running away in fear, but we can stand confident. How does this work? How do we receive this unshakable confidence? Well,
Three things this morning that I want to look at in this passage. The first is we have to give up striving for our own righteousness. Second is we need to continue in him. And then thirdly, worship God. We give up striving for our own righteousness, continue in him, and worship God. So righteousness, or, or rightness, is a word that the Bible uses often to, to describe uh, how, how we um, should be living. We are, we are called to, and in this passage talks about it, practice righteousness, which, which is basically uh, doing good or, or being good. So um, righteousness is, is the moment that the teacher asks you, you know, uh, have you done your homework? Or that, that age-old question. And, and you know sitting there that you spent hours working hard, slaving away the night before so that you could face the teacher in this moment and say, ha, I did. And then from that response, that, that teacher then looks at you and says, what? Well done. In that moment, you stand right before her him or him. You stand righteous. This is the same feeling that graduates fr from uh, uh, high school or university. I know the Redeemer gradu graduation was yesterday, so, so this illustration is, is fitting. As they walk across the stage and receive their degree, right, that degree is a symbol of righteousness from that institution. You can take that piece of paper and then show it to a future boss and say, I am considered righteous in this area. I'm considered worthy of receiving this degree from this institution. I've passed the standard that has been set for me. These are moments that, that, that we are able to stand confident to be filled with, with joy, right? The, the moment that you walk across the stage to receive a degree is a very joyful moment because you, you've been looking forward to it for such a long time and you finally receive your righteousness. One of the parts of Adele's story that I shared a few minutes ago that was so powerful was that one of the reasons she felt so anxious before our show was because she felt the weight of expectation on her. Where she, she felt that everyone in that club that night was thinking to themselves, Adele has to perform better than her recorded album. And based on that expectation there was pressure pressure to perform because people paid money to see her people were expecting something of her and so the cost of failure was was high for her she needed to prove herself see these these are examples of how expectations from outside people right so a teacher gives you an expectation to finish homework uh, an institution gives you expectations for the degree the the people attending the the uh, concert had expectations on Adele, but, but in life we don't just have expectations placed on us, we actually have really high expectations of ourselves as well. Did you hear anybody in Adele's story say, I, I really need her to be better than the recorded album? No. She might have heard that from a few people, but most likely that is an expectation that she has placed on herself. 
Oftentimes we create very high expectations for ourselves, expectations that we could not even possibly fulfill. In the movie The Chariots of Fire, uh, the runner, Eric Liddell, famously uh, is uh, prophetically speaking about the Olympic 100 meter that he is about to embark on, and he says this. He says, in one hour's time, I'll be out there again, standing in one of these lanes, looking down the track at the finish line. And I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor, four feet wide, with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Will I? 10 lonely seconds to prove to myself that I am worth it. See, deep down in every single person sitting in this room, we cannot stand to let ourselves down. Am I right? And the question then we come to then is if we can't live up to our own expectations of us, then how on earth can we possibly live up to God's expectation of us, which is perfect obedience? See, a lot of us might think, you know, it's so unfair for God to expect perfection from us, but most of the time we also expect perfection from us. This is where the author of 1 John jumps in and says to us, do you want to stand before Jesus Christ confident? Which is the most troubling thing for us, because we know we can't. Deep down, every one of us knows that we are hopelessly lost in this. Because the author of 1 John knows that there will always be another, another performance. That there will always be uh, another degree that we will need. That the feeling of finishing your homework sadly only lasts until something else is assigned to us. What if we can't make ourselves feel worth it? And this is what is so backwards about the Christian faith, is that, that because the Christian faith says we receive a confidence to live boldly, through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not something that we earn by anything that we could say or do. It is received through Jesus Christ coming and living in our shoes, dying the death that we deserve so that through him we can receive a rightness before God and have confidence to stand before him. So continue in him is what the author of 1 John says to us. Continue in him. There's a section of verses that come after the, the opening section that, that Don read for us that kind of goes on, a, it, it seems like goes on a little bit of a tangent, where the, where the author stops talking about abiding and having confidence and practicing righteousness, and then says, and we are children of God. And it seems like it's an interruption. Why is it placed here? Well, it's actually really important. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope purify themselves just as he is pure. So the question is, is this a tangent? Is this off topic? 
but it actually has everything to do with this passage because this, this grounds us in our identity. It tells us who we are. We are God's children now. In a book I read growing up, uh, a classic called The Prince and the Pauper. I don't know if anybody has ever read that book before. I'm one of the only ones. Wow. Okay, a few people. Um, and so you'll be able to correct me if I got anything in the plot wrong in this book. But uh, it, when I read this a, a while ago, it, it tells the story of, of the youngest son of, of a poor family in London. And uh, this poor boy would wander around the gates of the palace and one day ran into Edward, uh, Edward Tudor, who was the Prince of Wales. And, uh, they, uh, and, and as, as uh, they became friends, Edward eventually invited Tom, the poor boy, into the palace. And, and they discovered through, through you know, spending time together and playing together that they actually resembled each other as well. And so eventually one day what they, what they did was they switched roles. The, the, the poor boy Tom clothed himself in the garb of, of, a, of a prince and was able to stroll through the palace as if he owned the place. And Edward, the, 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 the prince, clothed himself in poverty and was able to be invisible for a little while. And so in this story, uh, I, can, I, I tried to imagine myself as Tom, right, as stepping into these clothes of, of, of royalty, of something that I probably looked in on for so long and been, been dreaming of. And imagine what it would be like if I could just have a conversation with the king as if I was his son. What would that be like? And, and as Tom is, is able to do this, and as he's able to walk through this palace with, with being treated as royalty, the problem would be, though, that in the back of his head, he would know something. He would know that it's a farce. That it's not true. That he didn't do anything to deserve it. And somewhere out there is Edward, who is living in his place. I can imagine Tom knew to try to soak it all in because it wouldn't last. And it didn't. Eventually they had to switch back. Eventually the fairy tale ended because, because Tom was missing something. He was missing the great seal of England that all royalty uh, carried. And he didn't have it. But when Jesus Christ became a human being, he clothed himself in our likeness. Like Edward clothed himself in Tom's poverty. But Jesus didn't switch places with us. He, he took upon himself our spiritual poverty, our unrighteousness, and he went all the way. And, and, and when he died on the cross, carrying the weight of the world upon his shoulder, being cast out from the presence of God, taking on what, what, what we deserve, he actually lifted us up. He didn't switch places with us. He lifted us up. Because our confidence now to stand before God, we know that Jesus Christ has gone in our place and paid the debt. He hasn't just switched places with us. He's settled 
the score. And so we don't have to be like Tom, where we, we have in the back of our head that this is all going to end at some point. We, through Jesus Christ, are God's children now. We are royalty. So then what about the following verses? How do we handle these verses that talk about practicing righteousness? How does this fit into our sonship and daughtership? Tim Keller shares some wisdom on how to understand where, where, the, where our obedience to Christ fits into this. And he says, he says this. He said that a lot of times we respond to hearing that our identity is as children of God received by grace and not earned by works. We respond with something like this. We say, well, if it's true, if I'm a child of God and receive from him an identity that doesn't require me to do anything or actually practice righteousness, then why would I do good? If it's all a gift, why would I bother caring about enfolding people into the life of the community of this church? Why would I bother standing up for the injustice that I see all around me in this world? Why would I bother sticking up for the person in my school who is being bullied? Why would I bother doing that if my standing before God is received fully by grace? And what Keller points out to us is that when we respond with this, we still think in our heads, I have to do something. I have to be something. I have to clean up my life even just a little bit before I can be called a child of God. But if we don't need to do that, if what we read in this passage is too, that we are children of God now, if it's not earned by us in any way, shape, or form, and it kills our motivation to do good, then our motivation for doing good was probably out of fear. See, if we lose all the consequences for not practicing righteousness, and say there's no motivation for practicing righteousness, then the, mo the, 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 the consequences Sorry, the motivation was probably driven by the consequences. I must practice righteousness or else I won't be a child of God. See, this is what it means to be born of God, though. When we realize that we bring nothing to the table and we're still more loved by God than we could ever imagine, we break through. We break through. And we stop working and we start worshiping. This is what happened in the Gospel of John. In the first few chapters of John, Jesus encounters two different people. He encounters Nicodemus and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Nicodemus doesn't break through because he can't get himself into the space of, I don't work at this salvation thing. It can't be by grace. Whereas the Samaritan woman knows that she brings nothing to the table and, and messes everything up and breaks through and responds with joyful worship, sharing with her friends what God has done in her life. Practicing righteousness flows out of worship. 
It turns our response of, out of fear to worship out of joy. When the author mentions uh, what seems like he's saying, you know, Christians don't sin in this passage, there's, what he's actually saying is that, that through faith in Jesus, our hearts receive God's Spirit. It speaks to the root issues of our sins, which can almost always be traced to a lack of trust in God's love. And as God's love is lavished on us and sinks deep into our hearts, it frees us to be workable by God. And it kills the habitual sins that we get caught up in and feel shame and, and guilt in. The gospel kills fear and pride. And so what does this mean for us? Well, one of our core values here at First Hamilton is servant hospitality. We have committed to be a community that, that is hospitable to people. That take, we take on the, the, the role of servants in welcoming people. This is what it says. This is what we've committed ourselves to. To follow Christ's example of demonstrating hospitality by welcoming and enfolding those who seek a place to belong, extending ourselves as neighbors within our communities, and pursuing justice in the city so that all may flourish through God's grace. There's a lot on practicing righteousness here in this core value that we've committed to. And there's also a lot that we could use to try to justify our confidence before God. Oh, look. Look at the way that we, we draw people into our community and welcome them into this place. Look at all the ways that we are fighting against the injustice in the city. Look at all the ways that, that, that we are seeking the flourishing of all people and all things. Look at that. This could build some confidence in us, but it could also destroy it. You know, what happens if we aren't? What happens if we aren't living into this value? What happens if we don't see people being welcomed into this place? What if we don't fight against the injustice of this world? If we aren't a community rooted, grounded in our baptismal identity as children of God, we will never be able to see this core value as an expression of our worship, leading us to joy. It would always be uh, an expectation placed on us to perform. We are God's children now. How do we take these steps that lead to confidence before God, give up trying to earn our rightness before him on our own? It's impossible. You won't be able to do it. Do it. Then rest in him. Abide in the love of God, that you are God's child, dearly loved and beloved. Then stop. Let it sink in. Let that sink into your hearts. Then ask yourself, how then shall I respond? I know how complicated anxiety and stage fright and, and nerves can be, but I wonder, I wonder, I really do, that if, if Adele knew, and I'm not sure that she does, if she knew that, that the only person in this world that it ultimately matters to 
in the eyes of God that she is a daughter of the Most High, who loves and cherishes her as his prized possession. I wonder if that would calm her nerves before she steps out onto the stage. I wonder if that would lead her to sing, not for herself, but as an act of joyful worship to God. Our confidence is not in our own doing. It is a gift of God. Thanks be to Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we are people who are constantly trying to earn our way into your kingdom. Lord, we need help. We need your spirit to speak to our hearts. We need to rest in the fact that we are your children. Lord, help us to sink deep into our hearts, that it would lead us to trust you with our lives, and, and that it would overflow out of our, uh, the joy that, that, that comes from being a ch your child, that, that, that we receive confidence to stand before you, it would overflow out of our lives and lead us to become more like you in every way of our life. Lord, we pray that this would be for us a message that would give us hope and assurance, but also as a community of people who are, who are together being transformed by your grace to then uh, be sent out to renew, uh, uh, to, to renew the city in, in our world. Lord, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.